0: folks we are so glad that you're listening to our body politic if you have time please consider leaving us a review on apple podcast it helps other listeners find us and we read them for your feedback we're here for you with you and because of you thank you this is our body politic i'm farai chidea activist author academic lawyer funder leader Irva Shivad was all of these, and she was also my friend. She died last month of cancer, leaving a legacy of intersectional activism and a reputation for moving mountains. During this era, where attacks on LGBTQ Americans have become a key battlefront in political culture wars, her work is more relevant than ever. As just one example of the current climate, just last Saturday, police in Idaho arrested 31 white supremacists who'd planned to attack an LGBTQ pride event later that day. VAD, an immigrant from India, always made the connections between LGBTQ issues, racial justice and economic inequality. VAD authored the influential 1995 book, Virtual Equality, the mainstreaming of gay and lesbian liberation, worked as a lawyer for the National Prison Project, led the organization now known as the National LGBTQ Task Force, and co-founded the Donors of Color Network, among many more distinctions. I asked her friend and collaborator, Juan Battle, a presidential professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, what made Urvashi a force.
1: She made her biggest impact on the world through creating and liberating. She created organizations and institutions that directly and indirectly liberated people to organize, to be free, to access power. Professor Battle
0: also pointed to the ways she was able to connect the challenges to bodily autonomy and freedom facing many populations.
1: She intrinsically knew that you've got to build allies and you've got to build coalitions. And she was intersectional before we had the vocabulary as as freely as we do now. Within her, she knew that there were similarities in how the state treated LGBT folks and how the state treated uh, people of color. And so there was this sort of natural uh, alliance that could be built between these two Entities.
0: VAD is survived by loved ones, including her partner, the comedian Kate Clinton. As a couple, Urvashi and Kate embody the title of Tony Award-winning playwright and artist Alison Bechdel's comic, Dykes to Watch Out For. And fittingly, VAD will be commemorated at the Dyke March on June 25th as part of New York's Pride Month celebrations. Now your chance to listen to my 2014 conversation with pioneer Urvashi VAD. Rest in power, Urvashi. How are you, Urvashi? I'm very well. It's good to see you. It's great to see you, too. So in this report that you did, um, you you sent me, I was like, what are you up to? And you said, well, you know, I really worked on this report called A Roadmap for Change. And it's about recommendations for federal policy for the criminalization of LGBT people and people living with HIV and how to end that. And I had never really thought about it in the way that the report outlined. So just walk me through some sure. of the things you cover. Sure.
2: The report comes out of the work of dozens of primarily local, uh, locally based LGBT and criminal justice organizations that have been working on issues of policing and prison conditions and jail conditions of juvenile justice and HIV criminalization. And what you need to understand is that the LGBT community was criminalized. There was criminalization in the form of sodomy laws, which actively criminalized conduct. There were uh, laws that prohibited people from wearing the clothes of the opposite gender. So there's a history there that actually manifests itself in certain ways today. But there's also ways in which LGBT people, because of discrimination and stigmatization, find themselves thrust into the criminal justice systems. So this report was an attempt to put a set of issues on the national LGBT agenda that have not been there. It makes a very detailed set of policy recommendations to the federal government, primarily to federal agencies, actions that federal agencies can take by executive action in several different areas, in the arenas of law enforcement, of prison conditions, of immigration detention centers. And my favorite part of the report is where we talk about the underlying drivers to criminalization. We're living in a society in which uh, there's an over-reliance on the criminal law. We turn to criminal law to control behavior. The criminal law is not well-suited for. So, for example, putting people who are homeless on the streets because of a mental illness or because they've lost their job and don't have anywhere to go or because they can't pay their mortgage and they get swept up under vagrancy laws and incarcerated, that's not a solution to anybody's problem. The vast majority of people who are in prisons and jails are, are there for drug offenses Is criminalization the best way to handle somebody's drug problem? No. And it's expensive, too. And there are a number of of ways in which, you know, the lives of ordinary people who are just going about their business are affected by over-policing, over-incarceration, and over-reliance on criminal laws. So the HIV statutes, about 36 states have laws that Basically, they criminalized people who are HIV positive because they say that if you don't disclose your HIV status and you spit on somebody or you have sex with somebody, you could be facing a felony charge if that person brings a charge against you. Now, HIV is not transmitted by spit. It is not transmitted by shaking hands, by sitting next to somebody, by sharing a cup, by eating off the same plate, by doing a million normal things. It's got very precise ways that it's transmitted. And these laws are giving a people a false sense of security.
0: So this report we've been talking about is part of your working between many different organizations. You have written a number of different books. So how did you get to this point in your life? Give us your just your path. Well, that's a big question.
2: Yes, How did you get is. your start? Yeah. <laughs> I've always been interested in politics and political activism and social change. I think probably as an immigrant child, you experience two societies and you start to see the difference in the way people live. And coming from India to America at the age of eight, as I did, in the mid-60s, my, when my family immigrated here, Um I remember reading the paper even as a little kid and following the anti-war movement, which was, of course, on TV, as it was, uh, as was the civil rights movement and women's liberation. So, I mean, I was a child in the 60s, so I was just watching this stuff. But it was really made an impression on me, and I identified. And then as a student activist in college in the 70s, I plunged into the anti-apartheid movement, the women's movement, and that really brought me to another level of awareness about global struggles especially the anti apartheid movement you know the student divestment piece was what we were working on
0: so how did you decide that your part of your identity and part of your mission in college would be to be an activist
2: i can't say that i decided that i just it was what drew me i guess it was a calling <laughs> if i was a religious person i'd say i was called to that work mm-hmm. because that's what it felt like i just didn't feel compelled by anything as much as I did by activism. And I think I have a sort of a sense of fury at any authoritarian figure (laughs) and injustice. It just makes me mad and I just don't think it's right. So I just want to plug in and do what I can to change that. And that's been a part of me. And it predates my discovery that I was a lesbian and my coming out. To me, you know, I was either going to join a social movement or a rock band.
0: (laughs) Why not both? So is there anything you remember from childhood or teenagerhood where you had that feeling, oh, things just aren't right here, whether or not you acted against it?
2: Oh, you know, my mom tells a story of me as a very little girl. And she was, you know, yelling at me and my sisters about something. And she says I was probably like six or something. And I said, you know, to my mother, stop that. this is all in Hindi. I'm translating something like, stop that, Mom. We're not plants. We're human beings. You can't talk to us like this.
0: (laughs) I love that. And I'm sure she was like... she loved it. I'm sure she was like, oh, my goodness, what children am I I think it probably, I think it made her laugh. And she's told that story with great joy ever since. That's fantastic. Um,
2: Where I grew up in the U.S. was in a little college town in upstate New York. My dad was an English professor at the State University of New York in Potsdam. New York. So even in that small college town, there was an anti-war movement and there were protests on the streets. And I remember that and watching it go by the house and being part of that sort of spirit. I don't think I, I mean, I didn't do activism directly until I got to the university setting. And then I just got involved in a variety of different kinds of projects. And then After school, I moved to Boston because I wanted to join the women's movement. In the late 70s, Boston was known as a hotbed of feminist thinking and activism. The Combahee River Collective had come out with its statement on black feminism in 1977. And that was a really influential manifesto to a young radical in college and It was just an exciting time. There were all these little underground publications and weekly newspapers. And and in Boston, I got involved as a volunteer with Gay Community News, which was a weekly community-based newspaper published by a collective. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it was just a labor of love. And it was an amazing set of people and thinkers and writers and artists. It was there that I think I developed a sense of sexual politics in the contestation of ideas, our fights in the collective about why something should be on the cover and why it shouldn't. There were discussions about the representation of sexuality, and it was a wonderful time. And I started also organizing in the community um, with gay and lesbian advocates and defenders, which had just been started by two lawyers in town and a small group, which single-A GLAD, as it's called today, is the group that won marriage equality in Massachusetts in 2004. And um, Boston was a really great place to go to uh, law school. I went to law school while I lived there uh, at Northeastern University, which is a public interest law school. In other words, it is committed to its graduates going out and doing public interest law, whether as public defenders or working in the government or even in the private sector, yeah. there's a consciousness that you have when you go to school there, at least I, st- I still think it's there. And it was a great place. And it was where I got really compelled by prisoners' rights work. Yeah. Um, and then I ended up working at the National Prison Project of the ACLU.
0: That's Irvashivad, the late LGBTQ organizer, lawyer, and author. Coming up next, we'll hear more of this conversation from 2014 with enduring relevance today. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. If you're just tuning in, we've been revisiting a conversation I recorded in 2014 with activist Irvashy Vad, who died of cancer last month. Vad's death made headlines in mainstream outlets like The New York Times, The Washington Post and The New Yorker, and also in LGBTQ publications like Paz Magazine and The Washington Blade. She was a format breaker who was never afraid of taking on new roles and responsibilities, or of laughing, or of fighting for her rights and the rights of the many. In an era where anti-LGBTQ political organizing and extremism are ramping up, VAD's work shines a light on structures of power. Here's more of Irvishi VAD from our 2014 interview for the podcast, One with Farai. Were you able to combine your women's activism and your LGBT activism with the prison activism?
2: I was. And, um, you know, At the time, the AIDS epidemic was emerging, you know, in the early 80s, and so I actually devised one of the first surveys of prison policies on HIV-AIDS, and we wrote it up and published it in, like, 1984, and, you know, then tried to work on getting prisons and jails to actually have policies and provide medical care and all of that. In the early years of my activism, women's liberation and gay liberation were really merged in many ways in the LGBT movement and the movement that I came up in. In other words, it wasn't like two different worldviews. Gay men that I worked with in the 70s saw the issue of abortion as an issue of sexual and reproductive freedom. They saw it as their issue. They saw it as the same issue that they were fighting for around sodomy repeal or around getting the state out of control over their sexual lives. And it is. It's
0: conceptually and legally, in many ways, the same framework. The privacy framework that applies to the sodomy laws also applies to the question of how Roe v. Wade, you know, abortion rights were structured in Roe v. Wade.
2: But isn't it interesting how the two movements have kind of split. And today you have LGBT organizations actually will endorse anti-choice candidates or work with anti-choice political leaders. It would have been inconceivable to do that in another moment in lesbian and gay history, simply because everybody's understanding of what it meant to be a lesbian and gay activist was included women's rights.
0: You know, I think about a lot the ways in which different groups align and divide. So during the civil rights era, you had Jews and African-Americans with very aligned interests and now somewhat less so, um, some people would say radically less so. And it sounds like what you're saying about women's rights and LGBT rights among some people has also gone through this split. How do you begin to re-engage people in the commonality of equality? Because my personal view is that equality is an absolute. Like if you respect someone's equality, you respect their equality in all aspects of who they are. Well, I think, you know, one of the shifts
2: that I've been arguing for and I've been influenced in this by some wonderful work that's been done in in the critical race movement among trans legal scholars like Dean Spade Is to think about equality not just as formal legal equality, but to think about it as changing the lived experience of everybody in our community. And if you focus on lived equality versus legal equality, it really opens the door for everybody to see, wow, the lived experience of somebody living on the Upper East Side is really different than the lived experience of somebody living, you know, in a small town in rural Texas, And if I'm talking about LGBT equality, I want it to be a condition that both of those people can experience. So you have to sort of start to think about, oh, gosh, so how do I impact the life of that person in rural Texas, as well as the life of that person on the Upper East Side? And I think the framework of lived equality, of thinking about how government and business and all these institutions that we live under, that they distribute life chances and opportunities to people. Part of what we're trying to do is to recalibrate that distribution of life chances and opportunities. I think if you look at it that way, it draws you to the solution and the practical work that needs to be done, the practical policy changes that need to be made. I've spent a lot of time arguing theory and arguing for a, a moral unity, a moral reason why we should all be united, for solidarity has been a frame. Coalition has been another frame. Those are important, but I think lived equality cuts through a lot of people's resistance because really it's very rare that you stand in front of somebody and talk about what's going on for a homeless teenager and they're going to say, well, I don't want to help, you know, because I'm successful and Bourgeois, you know what I mean. It cuts through a lot when you say, "Yeah, freedom should be available to everybody, regardless of their economic position, or their geographic location, or their gender identity, or their gender. I mean, or their race." Then you get into, "Yeah, that's true. I believe that."
0: On an even bigger umbrella level, you know, we've been talking about struggles for equality among groups that, in some ways, have not experienced legal equality in America, but among people who seemingly should, you know, have always had legal equality in America, there's still people who don't have lived equality. And how do you have that conversation or is that impossible these days? It's not impossible at
2: all. And I think the way to have that conversation is to talk about the inequality that's built into the economic system that is the source of their hardship. So white working class people in this country are struggling. White middle-class people in this country are struggling, as are people of color. And they're struggling for the same reasons, because we have a economic order which has made certain decisions to privatize government services, to cut back on taxes, and to cut back on the taxes of the rich, to cut back on corporate taxes, and cut back on regulations, a process that's been underway for about 40 years. And it's had consequences and the consequences are being felt by people who are not wealthy and the burden is being carried by those people. And, you know, when you talk like this in America, people, they shut down, but we have to find a way to talk about neoliberalism in America and about how the economic policies of neoliberalism are hurting ordinary people by making it impossible for them to live their lives. If you don't have childcare or you you can't afford an affordable home, even if you have a job, you're gonna have a hard time making ends meet. Yeah. And that's a reality for a lot of people. So why is it so difficult for us to imagine a society in which more of the benefits of our society are socialized while some of the risks are privatized. We have the exact opposite situation we privatize the benefits and socialize the risk. You and I pay for failed banks. You and I pay the consequences of bad decisions on Wall Street. I think it should be the other way around. I think they should be responsible for their bad decisions. And business should pay the consequences of its stupidity, as I do if I make stupid decisions.
0: You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, first of all, the concept of Too big to fail, which is one of the leading arguments for why there should be protections for large entities. But I'm also thinking about just the very question of how America is doing right now, because I've been doing a lot of work on the economy. And if the wage stagnation continues in America, and there has been wage stagnation for years are people even going to be able to buy less expensive things. So I think that there may be maybe there's a way to even link a business argument to this, which is that you know people have been dealing with huge loss of family net worth um, after the great recession including white Americans but more profoundly for people of color. It seems like we're in a bit of a fragile time here and yet we can't politically seem to pull it together and have a dialogue. Absolutely because
2: we're we're stuck in very outmoded arguments of either or. And what is needed for the future of our country, and in fact, the environmental future of the world, is a concerted effort that you could call socially responsible capitalism. That's what we need. We need an economic mechanism, an economic system that actually values social benefit as much as it values profit. If we could get there, then people can make a lot of money and be doing good. I think it's really possible, and I, I'm encouraged by some of the younger leaders who, who are coming out of business schools and starting companies with that mindset. Social entrepreneurship is one piece of it, but I, I think it's got to be bigger than that. I think we've got to get like the mainstream companies somehow incentivize or prioritize the social benefit of what they do. They can't just be rewarded for short-term decisions that'll raise their paychecks. It's just a ridiculous system.
0: You're listening to Our Body Politic. We're revisiting my 2014 conversation with LGBTQ organizer, lawyer, and author Shivad, who died at the age of 63 last month, leaving a lasting legacy. Let's continue. One of the conversations we had earlier in our series was with Alec Ross, a former diplomat and author who talked about the U.S. government reclaiming a hold on some of the offshoring of taxes by U.S. companies as one of the remedies for income inequality, which we had talked about. And I I think there's definitely a lot of potential things, but we are at a bit of a political impasse right now in the U.S., So we've gotten so deep into questions of equality and questions of the economy, but you also have a fascinating life story, not just your life as an immigrant kid and, you know, your parents and your college activism, but also you have had a very long and flourishing relationship with Kate Clinton, who is an activist and comedian, and you also recently battled and won (laughs) over breast cancer. When you look at your life now, could you have imagined, like, let's say, when you were a young college activist, the things that are very recent parts of your life, like your struggle with cancer?
2: No. When you're young, you think you're invincible and nothing's going to, you know, you just don't think about health crises. Although as a young activist, I certainly had to deal with losing dozens and dozens of my friends to HIV AIDS. Um, But cancer was a shock. It, It was my second bout with cancer. I've battled um, thyroid cancer, which is a more manageable kind of cancer. And and then uh, I got breast cancer. And I was very lucky, and I am deeply grateful, because I had so much support. I cannot imagine people who have to deal with any illness without the support of insurance, of loving friends and family, who stepped up and just lifted me up again and again, of great doctors, of access to transportation to get you to, you know, the hospital. I went to Memorial Sloan Kettering for my treatments, and I could take a crosstown bus. <laughs> you know, that was amazing. Cancer is such an epidemic. Breast cancer for women is shockingly prevalent, and it's clearly environmentally related as well as, you know, affected by our genetic predispositions to something or another. Oh. But, The shocking thing to me going through this experience is is at once how little they know and how much they know. You know, they don't really know. Like, they can't really tell me you're, quote, unquote, cured. They can tell me percentages and probabilities. They can't tell me 100% that I'll never have a recurrence. I'm expecting not to, you know. But I certainly know plenty of friends of mine who battled breast cancer, who had recurrence and are no longer with us. Lost a friend in January, an amazing woman. So it's a weird thing, but you asked about the other part of my life, which is an amazing part of my life, which is my relationship with Kate Clinton, who is a writer and a comedian in her own right, and my partner of 26 years.
0: That's beautiful. It's
2: amazing. She is spectacular, the perfect foil to my gloomy... Predisposition. <laughs> we say we're the marriage of comedy and tragedy. That's so
0: funny. <laughs> I don't think of you that way. You just seem like two cool people, and you, you're just so comfortable together, like all great couples. You just seem to really be comfortable with each other. What was it that attracted you to her? Her the- kindness
2: and her independence. She's a deeply compassionate, kind person, it's kind of an indescribable quality. Of appreciation that she has for others and of regard that she has for the world. And that's a real rare quality in comics who can be quite cynical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I also love the fact that we're two very different people. And we used to ask people who are in long term relationships, whether heterosexual or gay, what's the secret to your relationship when we were newer in it? Because it's every relationship has its moments, and it's a struggle sometimes, absolutely. But universally, what people would say and what I would agree with is that the secret is communication. If that breaks down in in a friendship or in a lover relationship, that's where the relationships get in trouble. So communication is about really making sure you're connecting, not cohabiting. you know, it's about sharing even the hard stuff. and That's something that I've been lucky enough to have with her. And um, it certainly made my activism more rich in many ways. She gets me to lighten up. She gets me to laugh at myself and not take everybody seriously. You know, she always says she used to have this closing in one of her routines, which I loved, where she would say, and I'm not going to do it like Kate does, (laughs) so forgive me (laughs) already. Disclaimer,
0: Kate. disclaimer. Disclaimer.
2: But it was something to the effect that if somebody is saying, like running a real line of crap on you about whatever it is, and it's, it's making you mad, that the most powerful thing you can do is just burst out laughing at them. Just go, <laughs> and then go, <laughs> oh, you mean it. And she oh. says they will never be able to say what they were saying with confidence again.
0: Exactly. The power of laughter. My goodness we could go on and on and i want to i was i was going to ask you about many more things but as it turns out we have to get ready to play a little game an exercise that we do here so we get a previous guest to ask a question of our current guest take a listen
2: i would be interested to know the last film that moved you to tears and why hmm Okay, the last film that moved me to tears. Oh, now, of course, I'm blanking on any film. Oh, my God, Fruitvale Station. I saw Fruitvale Station last summer, and it was devastating. The story of a young African-American man who gets killed by the police at a station stop in California, and the story is so beautifully told about the last day of his life. And it's just how random and outrageous violence by the police can be and yet how targeted it is to young African-American males who are assumed to be doing something wrong even when they are just, you know, getting on a subway. And it was just a beautiful story. And that was a recent film that just devastated me. But I guess I have to say historically, can I just mention my most moving film, I one that I go back to again and again, and that's The Battle of Algiers, which is an incredible film made in the late 60s about the struggle of Algerian people against French colonization. And it's just a riveting movie because of the moral complexities of every character. And I found it really powerful as a young activist. It, it just really lays out the challenges involved in, in fighting for freedom. It's not a clear, righteous path.
0: Wow, those are, those are two very powerful recommendations. And I know many people felt that Fruitvale Station should have gotten an Oscar nod, among other things. Irvashid, thank you so much. Thanks, Farai. That was activist, author, and lawyer Irvashi Vad from our 2014 conversation for the podcast One with Farai. Vad passed away last month from cancer, leaving a legacy in LGBTQ liberation and a wide variety of other fields, including philanthropy and criminal justice. Coming up next, Our Body Politic presents Num from the podcast Truth Be Told. You're listening to Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. Before we continue with the show, I want to first ask for your help on an upcoming episode. Next week, we're going to be talking about the latest in the hearings about the January 6th insurrection. And we want to know what questions you have about the House Select Committee and the investigation into the January 6th insurrection. You can also let us know what you're feeling as this moment in democracy unfolds. Please let us know your questions so we can share them with our upcoming guests You can give us a call. Our voicemail is 929-353-7006. Again, that's 929-353-7006, giving us the questions you have about the House Select Committee and the investigation into January 6th. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Body Politic and send us questions there. Back to this week's show. On Our Body Politic Presents series, we bring you stories and conversations from independent voices in audio. Today we have a new offering from the podcast Truth Be Told, hosted by Tanya Mosley. Their episode, Numb, features minister and writer Dante Stewart speaking on hope during times of violence and loss. Let's take a listen.
3: How many times have you started talking to someone recently about all that's been going on and you can't even get the words out? I can't. I just can't deal right now is something I keep hearing from my people. When the world hits us over and over and over and over again, we do what we need to do to make it through. Feeling numb can feel
1: safe what's the word when you feel like you have one but you actually don't
3: what are the words when there are no words dante stewart found out the other day while driving to a friend's baby shower
1: i'm driving and i turn on bb winan's singing what do you want the lord to say and you hear nothing but like clapping and clapping and loud clapping
3: Dante's heart started to quicken, almost on beat with the claps. No words made way to feel. And for the first time in a long time, Dante cried hard.
0: What do you want the Lord to say?
1: Yeah, it felt good. That's probably the only best way to describe it. It felt like I got a little bit closer to what I've been wanting to feel. For this episode of
3: Truth Be Told, I called up Dante because, like you, I needed a powerful message, a salve for my soul. Dante is a minister and a writer, and right after the massacre in Texas, he wrote a piece for the Oxford American called Little Experiments of Liberation. One of those little experiments in liberation involves Dante doing what he can to feel, to sit in the music, to spend time with the people he loves— And to shield the youngest of us, like his three-year-old son Asa, from his anxiety and fears about the world. I hope you're as moved by his words as I am.
1: I don't want the kind of ugliness and the meanness of the world to steal and destroy whatever laughter and joy our children deserve. I think in moments of trauma and terror, it's very easy to be overcome, overwhelmed, even so, in some sense, defeated by the circumstances of our life and the circumstances we are forced to live in. And I think the choice to allow him to experience the joys of what it means to walk in school and everybody say Asa, uh, or the joys of when when I told him when he started running in front of me, I said, you're going to leave me and not tell me you love me? And he turns around and uh stops and throws his arms in a little direction as if he's, as if he's about to run back to me. And I kneel down to him and we begin to say our affirmations. I am beautiful. I am kind. I am strong. I am loved. uh, I can do anything. I will see you later. I want him to experience that because I know at some point, He's going to come in contact with the meanness of the world. And I want him to have something that has grounded him enough to say, despite everything, you have the choice to stay and some will. And that's Mm -hmm. right. And you have the choice to show up.
3: Those affirmations that you say to him every morning, those messages are important for him and also for you.
1: Indeed. And it reminds me so much of my mother. My mother made us affirm who we are because she knew that, like, if I can affirm who I am, then I can fight against what the world tries to make me or what it tries to undo in me. And that's particularly his humanity. And so when we are faced with so much inhumanity, we need an alternative imagination that accepts our humanity, fights for it, embrace it and remind us again and again and again and again that life is not just about resisting all of this, but it's about creating something different, something Mm. better.
3: The reminder that we're human, you actually call this moment we're in a feedback loop of American violence that requires us in many ways to convince ourselves that we are indeed human because being in a constant state of grief can actually numb us from our ability to feel. Can you say more about what you mean by that? Because in Indeed. a way, that numbness, in some ways, feels like the safest place to be.
1: And and I must agree that sometimes it is. Um, you know, James Baldwin has a quote that it is incredibly hard to see what we see. And I think when, when I'm imagining this feedback loop, the feedback loop is you're kind of in, in in a repetition of practice and action to where this loop becomes the norm, whereby it becomes a habit and, and, and it becomes so much a habit that it is thoughtless. Uh, and so when I think about the ways in which violence and trauma and grief and ugliness and pain and terror guys our American experience we have been on a centuries-long feedback loop where you experience violence violence and pain and then, you know, those in power tell you, you know, you have to forgive and forget and especially those who are of the faith perspective, you have to move on and then you think about the news cycle. The news cycle tells you, okay, you know, like, well, two, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, we may have one essay on it, we may have one of this on it, but it's on to the next thing and this feedback loop over and over again again, makes us become numb to the reality that none of this should be normal. And granted, and sadly, that is the situation that we have been forced into. We've been forced into, and this is not an accident. This is actually by design that we have been forced into a continual feedback loop to where on one hand, it's numb for sure, but like the feedback loop is also about exhaustion, You know, if you can exhaust somebody's heart and their mind and their soul long enough, then at some point they are going to give up on trying to change the world or show up in the world as a full person. It just is what it is. And so in order for us to break the feedback loop, number one, we need help. We need a context and a country. That will cherish and prioritize the well-being of its citizens rather than the power of those who are wealthy and those who are privileged. And I, and part of me, as a person of faith, I believe that things can change. Hmm. But if they are going to change, then it will take way more than just the will of those who are grieving and in pain. Because when you're grieving... It's very hard to imagine what it means to show up in the world and fight. That's so right. we need help.
3: You mentioned James Baldwin. You're, you're a James Baldwin scholar. And in your latest piece, you reference a Baldwin quote that says, how utterly improbable it is indeed, miraculous, that we can still have a drink or a pork chop or a laugh together. <clears throat> I'll try not to get emotional at that because I think that is the way that our people have been able to survive since the beginning of time, how humanity has been able to evolve since the beginning of time. What are you doing to feel your humanity and not live in fear in this very moment?
1: You know, that, that, that question is very hard because oftentimes I do live in fear. Oftentimes I am so concerned about the problems of the world that I oftentimes forget the promise of myself. That oftentimes, whenever situations of violence and pain and trauma occur, I feel like I have to force myself, as a person of sp- faith, especially to believe that the religion of those who would rather use the Bible and the church and theology. As a weapon of power and control rather than an instrument of love and liberation. I have to force myself to believe that they will not win in the end. And so oftentimes I am afraid. I am terrorized. And that's not even including the grief that we are forced into when we think about all the family members who were lost to COVID. You know, my granddaddy had dementia late stage dementia. And dementia took his mind, but COVID took his body. He was an elderly man. He went into the hospital for, yeah, I'm going to try not to get emotional too. He went into the hospital because he broke some ribs. You know, my grandmother, they've been married for 60 plus years. They, she got rid of all the furniture so that nothing in the house would be able to harm my granddaddy. That even if his mind couldn't articulate where he was going, he could at least find a place of safety in the comfort of his own home in Sugar Hill, South Carolina. And my granddaddy goes into the hospital. And because of policy, you know, he stays there. And of course, he a vulnerable old man who, you know, who loves to meander and get into everything. And so few days later, literally, I get a call from my mother that granddaddy is not doing well. He's in the hospital. And now they're putting him on ventilator. And Granddaddy went into hospital without COVID. And five days later, he has COVID. And a day later, Granddaddy is dead. And I'm having to sit at this funeral, having lost one of my best friends in September September of last year, tragically, to a motorcycle accident. My aunt uh, died. Her, his, his, his oldest daughter, then literally the day after her funeral, my granddaddy dies and the day after his funeral, another aunt dies. And I can be if I can be honest with you, it is so hard to live and be unafraid in this moment. And we need to acknowledge that grief and terror and violence does not just rob us of our future. It oftentimes rob us of our present. Yeah. And I must say, I am often afraid. But when I think about what my granddaddy meant and what so many of these, many of these communities mean in the ways in which they give us more, like Baldwin said, I think I become less afraid because I realize there is more to live than just the life we've been given.
3: The future, you say, does not rest at the altar of power, but at the will of the people and that dark days require deep love. What does that look like?
1: For me, that love means doing whatever you can in whatever way you must to remind yourself that you deserve the best things in life. You know, I think one of the challenges we're facing in this moment is like the unfairness of everything. Like it is not fair that we live in a country where black people who are elderly, who know the name Emmett Till viscerally. As they know their own breath. Have to also know the name George Floyd and have to also exist in a food desert and have to also exist in a country That fails to protect them. And then ultimately they are murdered. It's not fair that children have to live in a country and parents have to live in a country with their children where the unthinkable going to school, learning. Instead of being infused with education and imagination, one is infused with the hot lead of bullets. And grief only remains. That's not fair. And I think when we think about things that are not fair, there really is no answer but to do whatever you must to try and love yourself and tell yourself again and again and again that you matter. Maybe that looks like going and arguing at Congress. Maybe that looks like going and writing a poem. Maybe that looks like going and getting some rest and getting away. Maybe that looks like doing an interview. Maybe that looks like reading a book. Whatever you have to do to stay intact with your humanity. That's what we must do, because love for me, as I find it in the Bible, when Jesus says I come that they may have life and life to the full, whatever makes us as humans come alive, then we need to protect it and do it. And as Toni Morrison say, love this flesh and love it hard.
3: Dante Stewart is a minister, essayist, and cultural critic. He's the author of Shoutin' in the Fire, an American Epistle. Dante, thank you so much for this conversation.
1: Thank you, Tanya. It's been good.
4: In this here place, we flesh flesh that weeps laughs flesh that dances on bare feet in grass love it love it hard yonder they do not love your flesh they despise it they don't love your eyes they just as soon pick them out no more do they love the skin on your back yonder they flay it and oh my people they do not love your hands. Those they only use. Tie, bind, chop off, and leave empty. Love your hands. Love them. Raise them up and kiss them. Touch others with them. Pat them together. Stroke them on your face, cause they don't love that either. You got to love it, you. And no, they ain't in love with your mouth. Yonder out there, they will see it broken and break it again. What you say out of it, they will not heed. What you scream from it, they do not hear. What you push into it to nourish your body, they will snatch away and give you leavens instead. No, they don't love your mouth. You got to love it. I am Rebecca Carroll, reading Toni Morrison's Beloved.
3: Rebecca is a journalist and author of several books. Her memoir, Surviving the White Gaze, is a must-read. Our hearts are with the families of Uvalde, Texas, and the loved ones of those murdered in Buffalo, New York.
0: That was culture critic Rebecca Carroll reading from Toni Morrison's Beloved and minister and writer Dante Stewart talking with Tanya Mosley on the podcast Truth Be Told. The episode is from their current season, season four, and you can hear more episodes wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host Farai Chidea. Our co-executive producer is Jonathan Blakely. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister and Tracy Caldwell are our booking producers. Emily J. Daly and Steve Lack are our producers. Not Tina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three Cs. Today's episode was produced with the help of Lauren Schild and engineered by Archie Moore. And a big thanks to Tanya Mosley and her team at Truth Be Told. Truth Be Told is a production of TMI Productions and is produced by B.A. Parker, Aisha Brown, Phyllis Fletcher, and Enrico Benjamin in association with Fearless Media. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising-Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.